you have a Bible, let's open it up to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And over the last two weeks, today will be the third week we've been in this message series. And we're going to take a break on it next week for Candy Palooza. But, uh, <laughs> but I think there's one more. I think there's one more after this that the Lord would have me share with you. But we've been looking at weapons of our warfare. I've always said, you know, as, as we are in October, there's always that heightened essence of demonic things and spiritual warfare. And we know that for uh, Satan and satanic occults, it's a very high season for them. So I've always decided that, you know, when it's October, I like to preach a message that kind of kicks the devil in his teeth, usually something about sin or something about breakthrough that just would really irritate him. This year, I felt like we were to talk about spiritual warfare, and there are so many aspects of spiritual warfare that we could look at, but I, what I have found in my life is I'm pretty good with the basics, right? I, I know how to pray. I, I know that I need to be in the Word of God. I, I need to read it. I need to open it. I need to hear what it says to me. I know I need to go to church. And there are some basics of spiritual warfare that I think the average believer understands and has grabbed and can hold to and get a pretty good concept of. But what I found for my life is sometimes it is the unforeseen weapons of warfare that I really need to get in order to see breakthrough in my life. And I will approach God and say, but I've done A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but I'm still not seeing breakthrough. And it's often one of these unspoken small weapons that we have of our warfare that we need to uh, hold on to. The first week we talked about being stuck in nostalgia and how when you live in a place where you are so preoccupied with what has been, you will completely miss what God is doing now. And sometimes the greatest weapon of spiritual warfare is forgetting those things that are behind, as Paul would say, and press into what is ahead, right? If you keep looking back, you can't go forward. And if you keep comparing what God is doing with what God has done, you will always be disappointed because God likes to do things different every time for some reason. It's like once you think you've got the formula of how God works, he'll just flip the tables on you and do it completely different to keep you on your toes. How many of you know that? Uh, and then we talked about joy being a spiritual weapon last week. Ha ha. I have any ha ha friends in the room with me. And uh, when the enemy attacks, what do we say? Ha ha. Because joy is a spiritual weapon, and sometimes we need to be deliberate about not being so intense as Christians and, uh, you know, just letting the weight of spiritual warfare and problems around us weigh us down, and sometimes we need to choose very tangible things to help us wage war, like laughing and being around some good, funny friends and watching some comedies and, you know, just things to just lift your spirit. And uh, so that is a spiritual weapon. And today we're going to continue that uh, journey and we're going to look at a third spiritual weapon. But Matthew chapter 24 and in verse 4, this verse of scripture talks about the signs of the end times, which I think most of us probably would know that we are in those times or close to those times. And I know every generation since Christ has thought they were in those times. But what I can say is we are further or closer than any generation before us. So wherever you land on that, we are closer than we've ever been to the return of Christ. And in this verse of scripture, the disciples are approaching Jesus and they're very interested in what are going to be the signs 
of the end times. Uh, obviously, we've even seen over the last several weeks with the war that's going on in Israel, uh, you know, biblical prophecy literally playing out in, in front of us. And I always want to encourage us as a church to never, ever underestimate what's happening in Israel. Uh, because sometimes when we approach things about the end times, we expect it to be, well, it's America and it has to happen here because we are the center of the universe, right? Well, not in God's world. God's world, Israel, is the center of the universe. So sometimes the smallest strategic moves that happen in the nation of Israel is fulfilling biblical prophecy, and we just don't know it because we are so preoccupied with our own selves. So I always want to say we need to stand with Israel, pray with Israel, believe for Israel because God promised that land to Israel. And he says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for Israel. And I have never seen in my life so much anti-Israel uh, stances and belief as I'm seeing. And I just never thought I would, would, would see that. So again, we, we as a, a believers, we need to follow the Bible and what the Bible says. And the Bible says that we need to pray and stand with Israel. Do they do everything right? Probably not. Um, you know, most the Israel faith, the Jewish faith within itself, isn't Christian faith as, as they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But even in the rejection, God looked at them and says, you are my people, my chosen people. And many are coming to faith. But we, because of them, are grafted in to salvation. So we have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Therefore, we are saved, but it's only because of them. So we need to continue to stand and pray for them. But here are the, the disciples, and they're wanting to know what's going to be the signs of the time. And I think any believer who would read Matthew 24 and look at the world would say, hey, we are, we are pretty close. One of the things that Matthew 24 talks about that we will get into is that there is much deception in the world. And I want to bring that up because deception simply means to believe a lie. To believe a lie. So I want you to consider this, that one of the strategies in warfare of your adversary would be to get you and I to believe a lie in order for us to lose our victory. If he can get us to believe something that's not true, we could forfeit the victory that Christ died to give us. Remember, we are not fighting for victory. Jesus bought us victory when he went to the cross. He bled and he died. He said, you're forgiven. All power that's in my name is you have it. Come on, we did the great exchange. We are heirs and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. We have victory in our lives because we are the children grafted in through salvation to Jesus Christ. So we have victory. So it's not like we're trying to fight the devil so that we can win. We've already won because Jesus already won. But if he can get us to believe a lie, if he can deceive the church, what will happen is we will move away from a place of victory because we have been deceived and are believing a lie. So what we will see is in Matthew 24, Jesus says one of the signs of the times will be that many will be deceived. Many will believe a lie and many will fall away from victory. That's why Hosea 4.6 reminds us that, listen, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. They believe something that isn't true. Therefore, they have not seen the fulfillment in their world that they would hope to see. You with me today? All this is getting to where I want to go, so just hang with me for a minute. 
But one lie that I believe we have fallen into is the lie that we must fight to bring justice to our world. That we must fight to bring justice to our world, our situations, our conflicts. And I don't know, on the surface, that sounds pretty good. Well, God loves justice, right? He, he wants to see justice in the world. And wouldn't we be justice fighters? Listen to some scriptures, Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Hosea 12, 6. But you must first return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for your God always. Matthew 5, one last one, 38. But you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone would slap you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to them also. So here's what I want you to see, is that the lie is that we are called to bring justice to the world. Therefore, if there's injustice happening, and people have done unjustly to me, then I have to rise up and make it right in my own eyes. I have to right the wrong. I have to prove the situation, prove my side to bring justice. We were never called to bring justice by enforcing judgment. But every scripture I just read you simply means, or simply says to do justly. Not bring, just do. Take that in for a second. Never been called to bring justice to the situation. I've been called to do justly. So if I'm in conflict, somebody is waging war, so to speak, against me. There's heightened emotions. There's heightened feelings. Some words were said. Whatever the situation is, then there's warfare raging. Your call is not to prove your point, to win the argument to state your case, to make sure that justice is established in your own eyes in that sphere. Your call is to do justly. Be just. Can I submit this, that even in our world of chaos and, and calamity and plagues everywhere and, you know, nations roaring and warfare raging and, you know, laws being made and it seems like the world has just lost its natural mind. There would be this tendency within the church to want to fight and rise up and bring justice to the world because that's not right and that's not of God. But the Bible's never called us to bring justice. But the Bible calls to the church and he says, if you would just do justly, live justly, act justly, that's all I've called you to do. Vengeance will be mine, says God. You just do right. You just live right. So this is a trap, a deception to the church in these end times. Listen, if we are more preoccupied with judging a lost world than we are living right in our own home, we've already lost the battle. If we are more preoccupied with judging the lost world than we are with living right in our own home, we've already lost the battle. 
I've said this so many times, but I believe in, in politics. I believe in, in voting in right men. I believe in praying it through. I believe in standing up, and I believe in making our voice heard. But listen, if we are so preoccupied with trying to make the government look like what we believe the Bible says, we've lost. Because the Bible also said never to have the government bring justice. It's always been on the shoulders of the church. But the world looks at the church and sees no difference within the church than without the, outside of the church. But they said, well, why would, I wanna, why would I wanna do that on a weekend? Why would I wanna sow money into that? Why would I wanna live like that? Why, because we've been more preoccupied with bringing justice than doing justice. But if I can live justly in my own home, if I can live justly at my job, if I can do right what's in the eyes of God in front of me, we see this all throughout Scripture. Every Bible character that we know of that has won. I think of Daniel, who when the law was made that, you know, everyone had to go ahead and bow uh, to an idol and couldn't pray. Here's Daniel living justly in his own world. What I didn't find was Daniel standing on the corner holding a sign saying that you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. What did Daniel do? He went into his own home got down on his knees three times a day, and did justly what was right in front of him and his God. Why? Because as for me and my house, somebody say my house, we will serve the Lord. So I got to take care of me and my house and make sure I'm living right, doing justly, and allow God to take up the difference. If the church would simply start acting like the body of Christ we would start to see a world desire what we have. If we would start being the salt of the earth, you know, salt has that essence to it where it makes you thirsty. But because the church has lost its saltiness, the, the world doesn't thirst after what we have. So the deception is that I have to enforce justice in my world. I have to win the argument, prove my point. But what I found is that in hard situations, God would not only heal me, but if I would trust him, he would pay me back for what the enemy stole and did in my life. There's a scripture that says the Bible actually, the, that says that he will pay us back for the shame of our youth. That God is our reward. And here's what I've found, that if we keep trying to collect our own debts, if we try to collect our own debts, then God will not get involved and do it for you. It's you or him. And in every situation, that's what he puts in front of us. Either you do it or you let me do it. You know, we come to God and we, we, we get saved, we confess he's Lord, and we say, I will trust you with my eternity because inwardly we understand. I'm sorry, I'm just making sure you're awake, I guess. I don't know. But in, inwardly, we understand that there's nothing that we can do after we die. <laughs> so we have no other choice but to trust God with our eternity. So we run up to an altar, we say, God, I'll trust you with what I can't control, my eternity. But everything before then that I do have a say in, now you let me take care of that. So God says, 
That's not how this thing works. You can do that if you want to, but the reward you get is the reward you get. But if you really want to see justice done in the earth and you got to step back for a minute, trust me in every sphere of your world and watch that I will not avenge justice on your behalf. Come on, somebody. I'm preaching better than you're shouting, but it's all right. But he leaves us the choice. Either you do this or I'll do this. I can trust you with my eternity, but when it comes to my money, don't touch it. When it comes to me being vindicated, when somebody trashed me, don't touch it. God, I got this one. When it comes to me, you know, gossiping about somebody else and, and spreading lies, don't, don't you worry about that, God. I'll take care. I'll, I'll put them in their place. And God says, that's fine. And when it all falls apart and it all blows up, <laughs> you're coming running. And he's faithful. <laughs> he's just. Come on. The fact of the matter is, he says, listen, if you want to handle it, handle your business. But if you want me in it, step back from it. Come on, we all. That's, that's, one, that's one of the hardest lessons that we have to learn is to say, I got to step back from this. This is God's. That's why the Bible tells us to forgive our enemies. Takes another step forward and says, love and pray for your enemies. Can I tell you the third weapon we're talking about today is love. And love being the highest weapon that we have in the arsenal of our warfare. There's no greater sword, no greater weapon, no greater tool that you could pull out in the midst of spiritual battle than the weapon of love. And listen, we don't forgive people because they deserve it or not. We forgive them because it's what God asks us to do. Amen? Second Chronicles, let me remind you, verse 20. God reminds Jehoshaphat. He says, thus say the Lord, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed by this great horde. The battle is not yours. The battle is not yours. But, but, but you don't understand, Pastor. <laughs> the battle is not yours. But if I, don't, if, I, if I don't say it and if I don't do it and if I, I just let them keep saying what they're saying and people are going to believe, the battle is not yours. The battle is not yours. The battle is God's. Well, if I don't figure out this financial problem and I don't make some, you know, if I don't do what I have to do, listen, the battle is not yours. The battle is God's. The temptation to pull somebody down beside you so that you can be promoted in their place. It's there because we're human. It's there because we all have a sin nature. But listen, the battle is not yours. It's God's. Maybe you just need to be reminded of that today. Let it go. That's hard. <laughs> but let it go. It's God's. So the Bible says that in the last days, the deception will come on the earth and it will come on the church. And there's actually a verse in Matthew 24, it continues, that says if he didn't, the deception will be so bad that if he doesn't shorten the days, even the elect will not be able to stand. So what we have to do is we have to get our heads out of the sand and realize we are living in extremely dangerous times. Extremely dangerous times. And yeah, I could go into, uh, you know, freedom of speech. I can go into the political. But I think the most dangerous time, and the reason it's the most dangerous, is because the deception is coming on the church. 
and we're believing lies, and as long as we believe lies and are deceived, we will not see victory in our life, and that's what the enemy wants. So we are in dangerous times, not necessarily because what's going on out there, because we're God's people, right? It's dangerous times because what's going on in here? And preachers filling our pulpits who just want to grow large ministries and are afraid to tell you it's sin, get out of it. Come on, somebody. I'm going to stay back to this. I didn't even get past page one yet, so I almost, I almost started running there. But So Matthew 24, let's actually read the verse of Scripture. How about that? <laughs> so as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us. When these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them and said, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now let me just pause right there, because for a long time I thought that simply meant that there would be people on the scene that would say they are the Messiah, or they are the resurrected Jesus, and they are the Christ, follow them. And I do believe there's an essence of truth, there will be those, but I think the majority of Christian people would understand that there is no other Messiah but Jesus. But when he says, I am the Christ, it means the burden-removing, yoke-destroying power of God, the anointing that is manifest. So I think there's the potential within the body of Christ to have people come in that says, follow my anointing, Follow my anointing. And if they're not right, they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you are not alarmed, for all of this must take place, but it's not the end yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, but all of these are the beginning of birthing pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away. We, we see that happening. But here's what I want to really lean in, in on. And betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, now here's what I want us to see. A sign of the end times the love of many will grow cold. How do I know we're living in the last days? And this isn't an end time sermon, but how do we know? It's because people's love walk will begin to be grow, will grow cold. And what we have is we have prophets coming in saying, well, well you know, we got to fight against the world and we got to enforce justice on the world, which has never been our call. And building up in the body of Christ this message of hate and this message of, you know, you're against me and I'm against you. And now hate has been, the Bible says, this is all a sign that the end is coming because we will lose our walk of love. You can never move away. You can't follow Jesus and move away from your love walk. But I love that he says in verse 13, but to the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this is where I want to hang around today. The love of many will grow cold. There's so much anger and hatred and strife and judgment 
and criticism and gossip and unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment inside the walls of the church. Inside the walls of your home. Inside your marriage. Didn't mean to boil it down that close. But can I tell you this? Because of this, the church has no power. Why? Because the Bible teaches that the anointing abides where there's peace and unity. There's a commanded blessing where people dwell in unity. Could it be that some things in your home will not turn around because there's strife, unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, resentment built up in your home? I'm quoting scripture. I got worship music on 24-7. I've been praying. I've been fasting. But you haven't forgiven. You haven't just backed up and said, you know what? Between me and you, we're going to see this thing differently, but I'm going to choose to love you. If you will forgive me for my part, I'll forgive you. Even if you don't, I'll still forgive you for your part. But let's just, let's just learn to love one another. Let's just forgive the hurts that have happened. Let's move forward. Why? Because that's when the commanded blessing falls on a home. And if it's on your home, it falls on the church. And when it falls on the church, it falls on our city. And it falls on our nation. And it goes around the world. But it first must start in your own home. So that's why we don't see God's anointing. And listen, you don't just need the anointing on your home to preach, to stand here and do what I do. If you've been alive for any period of time, you understand that you need his anointing to raise kids. I tell people all the time, I don't know what I did before I had kids. I was 30 when we had our son Jeremiah, and it's like everything else before that was so, I don't even, like, what did you even think about? Because I am so consumed with praying for my kids, and are they being loved right? Are they being taught right? Are they growing right? Do they have the right circle of friends? And, you know, you, they, you hear something. Somebody did something at school. What do I got to pray through? What do I got to believe for? You know, they got a sniffle. Now I got to stand in healing for that. Like, there's just all of this stuff. It's like, what did I even... that's why sometimes I'm amazed when like everybody else is into everybody else's business like get some kids or something because I I don't know how you have time for anything else because it's just like I got to pray for my kids and I got to believe for my kids and make sure they're healthy do you understand what I'm saying so it's like I don't got time to judge what you're doing in your spiritual walk and what's going on in your house I got to take care of mine and it's a full-time job if you're doing it right Every day I try to, before my kids go to bed, lay hands on them and pray for them and, you know, have them, you know, pray with me and we, we go through it. We pray for their bodies. And it's, I don't feel like doing it most of the time. But we press through. We make sure we sit at a table and eat together. Why? Because outside of scripture, studies will show that kids who sit at a table and eat together will do well, better in school, less likely to be involved in drugs. I mean, the scientific proof behind that is staggering. So sometimes I got to leave. I got to shut the meeting down. I can't talk with you much longer because I got to go. I got to sit with my kids. Why? Because if I just got to take care of my own house, I don't have time for the drama of everybody else's home. You need the anointing to raise your kids. You need the anointing to go to work. (laughs) Come on, somebody. But here's what I found. You cannot have the anointing and hate somebody at the same time. They just don't work together. They just don't work together. And what I've often found is nobody has done worse to me 
than what I've done to God. And yet he forgives me time and time and time again. I often say, nobody knows your testimony like you know your testimony. The secret things, the secret thoughts, the secret sins that nobody will ever found out, find out about it. Why? Because God covered you. But he knows. He knows how many times you shook your fist in his face and did what he told you exactly not to do, but he still covered you and he still got you out of the situation and he still forgave you and you're still standing today and he's still using you and he's still blessing you despite what you've done to him. So nobody's done more to you than what you've done to God, but nevertheless, he turns around and forgives you and stands by your side time and time and time and time again. So who are we to look at somebody else who's done us wrong and say, well, now, now I have to enforce judgment on you and bring justice to this situation because because you have hurt me or wronged me. Whatever he gives us, he expects us to give it away. Love, mercy. We don't forgive because it's easy. We don't love because it's easy. But we forgive to keep Satan from getting an advantage over us. Listen to this in Ephesians. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give the devil a foothold. Come on, somebody. So what is he saying? When you stay in unforgiveness, you stay in anger and refuse to walk in love towards other people, you are literally opening the door to your world and saying, Satan, this way. You're putting a big empty room sign on the front of your house saying, bring whatever you got. See, this is so important because, again, we can be doing all of the big things. I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible, I'm worshiping. But if I'm not walking in love and I'm not forgiving, I will not see victory in my life. My marriage will not be restored. My relationships will not be restored. I won't be a, excuse me, a successful person in business. I won't be a successful person in anything that I do. The Bible says that you know, we can be blessed in the field, blessed in the valley. Pretty much everything that we put our hands to do is blessed. And if we're not seeing that, it's not because God is holding out. It's because somewhere along the way, we are limiting God's ability to do in our lives what he wants to do because of us. Come on, somebody. So we got to learn to forgive. We got to learn to understand that our love walk is the most important walk that we have. And what you don't lean in on and focus on and be deliberate on will always crumble. I'm helping you today, whether you know it or not, because I'm just giving you enough things to keep you so preoccupied. If you just get focused on your house and your family, and you just get focused on you being sure that you walk in love with every person you encounter, you will have no time for anything else. What sin? I don't, I, who has time to sin? <laughs> who has time for that? Some lady cut me off in the parking lot today. Now I got this whole inner healing thing to do. I got to forgive them. I got to pray for them. I got to somehow bless them. I mean, this thing is all consuming my life. Why? Because it's that important. Because it's that valuable. Because above all else, God says above it all, love one another. Protect it. Guard over it. 
Not to do so opens the door to your life for the enemy to come in. And now you're wondering, why is it all falling apart? Why are the finances drying up? Why is sickness in my, how is all of this happening? I thought God had a shield, a hedge around me. Absolutely, but again, you took matters into your own hands, decided to do it in your own strength, so now you have opened the door and given the enemy a foothold in your life. So I can stand up and rebuke the devil till I'm blue in the face and say, get thee behind me and I'll bind in heaven and I'll bind in earth. But until I move into the realm of father, is there unforgiveness in my heart and in my life that I need to deal with? And if there is, you need to help me through this. That's when victory comes. That's when the door gets closed. The enemy will come before you one way and flee in front of you seven ways when you start getting right internally. Come on, somebody. Again, in verse 10, I'm just going to read it again. But many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. We're talking about defeating the devil. And there's only one way to overcome evil. And that's by doing good. Doing good. How do I overcome evil? How do I overcome the attacks of the adversary in my life? And understand this. You're never fighting and warring against people. Never. It's not like you versus them. It's you versus the enemy. And let me just submit this to you because one of the greatest things or problems that I think that the church has is we always see ourselves as the innocent ones in the story of the gospel. Understand that just today, you have probably been the thorn in somebody else's side that they have to forgive. If you don't believe that, just nudge your husband or your wife or your kids, and they're going to say, yep. (laughs) So what we don't do is we don't approach it as me versus you. Me versus, it has nothing to do with them. What it has to do is the enemy trying to get me distracted by letting me see some personality flaw that irritates me and somebody else, even though my personality probably irritates 20 other people. And I'll get so distracted. That was a brother-in-law, so just ignore him. (laughs) But if he can get me distracted, get thee behind me, Satan. See what tried to happen? They tried to pull me away from my sermon. But if he can get me distracted and preoccupied with you and what you did to me and your problems and how you made me feel and how you didn't bless me and how you cut me out and how you talk bad about me, all that I'm doing is I'm building up and I'm building up and I'm, I'm not focusing on keeping my heart right and my spirit right and my soul right. And now I'm giving him a foothold to come in and do what he wants in my family, in my children, in my home because I'm so preoccupied with you. So understand, this isn't me versus another person, you versus another person. But the solution is always other people. What do I mean by that? We overcome the attack of the enemy with good. We love people. We help people. We serve people. We give to people. So when the enemy comes in and, you know, all hell's breaking loose, people are talking, whatever's going on in your world, your boss is ignoring you, so and your coworkers done this. The greatest thing that you can do is pull out the sword of love and say, how am I going to help somebody else today? My marriage is under attack. Who can I call and pray for their marriage? 
And I guarantee you, the more you do that, the less the enemy will attack you. If the more you attack me, the more I bless other people, he's going to figure out, hey, they're not the ones. Because the more I do to them, the more they do for other people. Like, they're unstoppable. They're, like, pressed down. Like, what does the scripture say? But not destroyed. I'm buffing it, buffeting them. I'm searching. I'm trying to devour them. But the more that I put on them, the greater they rise up in the identity of who Jesus Christ is. And the more they become like him. So eventually he's going to figure out if the more I put on them, the more it causes them to be like Jesus, the less I'm going to do. Come on, somebody. So what does the Bible say? The Bible says, listen, if you want to be my disciple, come after me. You have to forget yourself, losing sight of yourself and your own interest, and take up your cross and follow me. He never said it would be easy. He never said it would always be a joy. He never said it wouldn't have hard times. He never said you wouldn't have to love through tears and through pain. But listen, what I have found is if you forget your own self and serve God by serving people, God will always come in the back door and take care of you more than you could have ever done for yourself. If we could just get our eyes off of our own problems. Did you ever have a scary... Oh, by the way, I know people ask, and I probably should say it. Sarah is home from the hospital. She came home uh, last, the end of last week, or I guess was it this week. I don't know. It all blended together at some point. Uh, was it Monday? I think it was Monday. And uh, she had pneumonia, but she's back home. She's not here today because I'm a younger two. Uh, got a cold, so I decided let's not spread it to all of you guys. And uh, so they're home. And uh, yeah, you're welcome for that. <laughs> um, but you know that those few days when Sarah was in the hospital, we knew she'd be okay. She just needed medicine. But you know, it turns your world upside down. So I had other things planned and, you know, on my calendar. And then something like that happens. And all of a sudden, like the big thing that was on your calendar suddenly becomes the small thing. But that's what happens when you start serving other people. It's the big, big thing in your world that you can't see over and get over and move past. When you start serving other people, suddenly that just becomes so small and insignificant. It's like really when you, you think of in the scope of eternity and you stand before God and we have that great judgment where he, he judges what we've done and, and what we've said and how we, we've acted. Like do you really think in the scope of all of that as you stand in his glory before his throne and he's like, listen, you did not forgive this person. And you're like, what well, God, in 1997, she did me wrong. You know what she did. Like who cares what she did in 97? All right. I got to move on quickly. In 1 Samuel 24, I'm going to paraphrase the, the, the story just for time's sake. But we have the story of David and Saul. And if you're familiar with that story, you understand that Saul was the king, but God rejected Saul because, again, he didn't look after his own soul. And he tried to hurry God, and he became a angry person and God said well you're done and I'm going to anoint David and Saul began to get jealous of David and now begin to pursue David for most of David's life he was pursued by Saul hiding out in, in caverns and 
uh, Saul was just trying to kill him. Well, in 1 Samuel 24, we have this interesting encounter where David is in, in his, and let me read this part to you in verse 4. And David's men come in and they say to him, here is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as you seem good to, as, as it shall seem good to you. And I want to stop right there because this is David's men. This is his crew. This is his inner circle. This, these are the people he does life with. He hides with, he fights with, he hunts with. And they took what the word of the Lord said because the word of the Lord to David was, I will give your enemy into your hand. So they weren't wrong in the announcement of what God's word was. And what's happening here is David is in his cave and they find out that Saul actually just had to pee and went into another cave. And they're like, David, today's the day. We've got him. The word of the Lord is coming true that he will avenge you, your adversaries. Are you ready for it, David? And I want to submit to you, be careful who your friends are. Because voices will not always point, to, point you to right living. They don't always point you to right living. They wanted to see David go into that cave and come out with the head of Saul. Victory and vengeance. So the story goes on. David gets up and he goes into the cave. And while Saul's not looking, he actually cuts off the corner of Saul's robe and, 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 and comes out. And when he sees Saul, David announces, hey, Saul, it's me. And he said, holds up the part of Saul's robe and he says, look, you have sought to kill me all of these years. And I've had my moment to bring vengeance on you. I could have taken, you didn't even know. But I will not touch God's anointed. He, he says in verse 10, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. David goes on, verse 12, and he says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. Wow, what a prayer. May the Lord avenge me against you, but it will not come from my hand. I will not bring judgment. I will not bring vengeance. The Lord will do it for me. He goes on and says, as the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. The Bible says that when Saul hears this, he begins to weep. And he says back to David, surely, surely you are called to be the next king. Surely. Why? He realizes that David's, A, self-control. <laughs> David's mercy upon Saul qualified David where Saul was never qualified. He says, David, you will be the next king of Israel. I have brought harm on you and you have forgiven me. He says, David, in your mercy, will you please make sure that when I am gone, you do not wipe out my family. And David makes him that promise. How you choose to live in response to an attack from others 
puts on full display your maturity as a believer. I just like that word, maturity. We don't hear it much in the church. Pastor, throw some good seed my way. Make me feel good. Pray for me. Knock me down. Sing my song. Send me spinning out the door. It's not my job. If all I ever do is make you feel good, then I'm failing at my job. My job is to raise up a church of mature, growing believers who aren't perfect, but day after day we are leaning in more to who we are to be, who we are to be in Christ. And sometimes that means I got to have a real good evaluation of my soul and my spirit and my mind and my maturity level and my giftings and my fruit to see where I am and see where I need to grow. And the best way we can see that is when we are under attack. Put you in the fire. And what's in you will come out of you. An attack will always expose what's really on the inside. I know we hear this verse of scripture at every wedding, but listen, beyond wedding bells. Pastor, I, I, I'd like to prophesy. I'd like to prophesy over people. All right. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, I got the gift of faith. You need something, I'll believe it. I've got the gift of faith. To move mighty mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Pastor, let's, let's really go to the streets and let's just really evangelize. Let's, let's get that evangelistic gifting flowing. If I give it away, all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I do not love, I gain absolutely nothing. Listen, because he goes on and he says, but understand that love is always patient. What is he? He's talking about the fruits of the Spirit. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Didn't mean to talk about you in your mornings. <laughs> it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes in all things, and will endure all things. Wow. Have we sought the manifestation of the Big miracle giftings? I'm an evangelist. I'm a prophet. You ain't loving nobody. So I had a meeting not long ago, and an evangelist, healing evangelist, had come in, and uh, afterwards, the, the, the host pastor said, Hey, I, I want to invite you to come back to the bus where the evangelist would go after, and all the ministers come. And I'm never uh, usually about that, but I thought I will. I'll go. And I was. <laughs> floored by the tone and the rudeness of this evangelist to his staff. And the host pastor called me and was like, yeah, because he was telling one of his staff members pretty much off in front of everybody. And the host pastor said, yeah, you know, we had to replace a musician and a singer because they refused to come back. Isn't that just so sad how the body of Christ won't support the apostles and the evangelists? I thought, oh, 
I'm not coming back tonight, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> because I don't care how many people got up out of the wheelchair. If you can't love and be kind to one another, and I get being a boss and having to correct people and get people to move. I get all of that, but if you can't do it with the graciousness and love and character of God, then I don't want anything else from you. Listen, love never ends. For prophecies and prophets, they will end. They'll pass away. For tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. Verse 13, and we know this. So now faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest will always be and come back to your ability to love people. Don't tell me you're a prophet and be mean to people. Don't tell me what's what God is saying and you can't forgive your wife. Don't tell me what God's doing in the earth and you can't forgive what's happened in your life. Don't tell me that God's speaking to you and you can't move past a church offense. The highest level of maturity of a believer is their ability to love people who, listen, are unlovely. To forgive quickly and to live rightly. Everyone wants the power gifts, but a mature believer will desire the fruit gifts. God, make me have love, joy, bring peace into my life. Sometimes having peace in your life means you just got to let people be in their own misery. Sometimes it means you got to cut friends out of your life because it's like, I can't, you, you're just there and miserable and negative and gossipy and all of that, and I got to protect my peace. It's actually a fruit of the Spirit. God, help me have patience, kindness. What was the last sermon that I ever preached to you on meekness and gentleness? I don't know that I ever have, but it's probably my problem, not yours. But help me be meek and gentle, long-suffering. Wow. Wow. But what do we want? We want eight keys to our breakthrough. <laughs> Twelve ways to win financially. Come on, somebody. And God's saying, just learn to love. Be long-suffering. Seek first the kingdom of God. And I'll take care of the rest. I don't need eight keys to breakthrough. If I've got the fruit of the Spirit. It will auto-produce in my life. Are you with me? Growing in the fruit of the Spirit auto-produces good things in your world. I don't got to try. I got to make it happen. It just happens. Oh, this is... I'm liking this sermon. I think I'm going to download it and listen later. And one of you all after church are probably going to make me have to download it and listen to it later. Yeah, you're welcome, Brandy. But listen, a mature believer will always work to cover and not expose someone else. A mature believer will always work to cover and not expose someone else. I am closing. I'm reminded in Genesis 9.20 for Noah, I mean, what a great man of God. He did right in the eyes of God, so much so that out of the whole planet, God said, Noah, you and your family will be saved because of your righteousness. Well, Noah had a problem. He was stuck 
in a boat, not just for 40 days and 40 nights. That's how long it rained. After it rained, they had to wait for the water to come down. So he was stuck in a boat with a bunch of animals and family for days, for long months, long, long, long time. On the other side of that, verse 20, it says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank the wine. I still say it relates back to this family and being stuck with them, and became drunk. But listen, he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father Noah and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on their shoulders and walked in backwards because they didn't even want to see. And they covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and saw that his youngest son and, and he saw what they had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he would go on to bless those who covered him. A mature believer will always work to cover the nakedness or the failure of a brother or sister and not to expose. What type of church would we be if we had a group of people that when we saw somebody else's problem, their failure, that we rushed in and tried to cover instead of rushing out to expose? You know, the Bible says that we should confess our sins one to another. And it doesn't happen, and I sometimes don't think it should happen, even though the Bible says we should do it. Because it should happen in the context of a healthy, growing community where we cover one another and we believe in one another and we pray for one another. But when you have a culture and a community who celebrates when somebody else falls because it makes me feel better about my own self, well, no wonder I don't want to come and tell you what my problems. Come on, somebody. And I say this, listen, and relationally, sometimes the greatest thing love will do is speak truth to somebody else. And I got to tell you, listen, we were doing life together. We have relationship together. But it should always come out of relationship. Sometimes people ask me as a pastor, hey, where do you and your church stand on fill in the blank, this big social issue? And what they're wanting me to do is just, you know, put our stance on how we feel about this thing or that thing. And I often refuse to do that, and it's not because I'm ashamed of what the Bible says, but because my job isn't to uh, just push away a whole sector of people who believe differently than me. My job is to get to know the individual beyond their sin, get to know their life, their story, their history, their past, and sitting across a kitchen table, have a conversation that says there might be more for you than what you're believing in the deception that you have right now. And I can say that to you because I love you and you know that I love you. And I'll stand beside you. All right. Sometimes they're ready and sometimes they're not, Pastor Travis. You just got to keep flowing with them. <laughs> All right, one last scripture to really bust out your toes and then we'll go. Team, you can come. First John 4, 7, 21. Let's see what... First John would say, dear friends, he starts so nice. 
Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who has, oh, excuse me, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And here's where he just stabs you right in the side. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. That's a bold statement. Whoever does not love does not know God. Wow. Continuing in verse 16. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. And there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Let me just parenthetically insert this right here. People often say, well, what about Job? How did Job lose everything if God has a hedge of protection? Go back and read the book of Job. You actually see in the very beginning where it talks about Job and his sons and his family. It says Job feared that calamity would come on him and his house. What do we just read? There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Job, because he was not perfected in his understanding of the love of God, left that open door for the adversary to have access into his world. We love because God first loves us. Listen to verse 20 real closely. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. I'm not, don't, this ain't me. This is your Bible. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this commandment. Anyone who loves God must love their brother and sister. Wow. Maybe we need to read that one a little bit more than greater is he that's in me than he that's overcome the world, right? Listen, I want us to understand this doesn't mean that we become a doormat for people. My mom always used to say, I, I love you, but I don't like you. And she'd say that to us kids sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes maintaining your victory means you can't be close with everybody. It means you've shown me some character things that I just can't let close into my world. I can love you. I'll pray for you. I will never speak evil of you. I'll do anything that I can do to bless you. But I can't give you access into my, my deep part of my life and my family because of what's happening in your world. You with me? It doesn't mean we become a doormat for people, but it does mean that we forgive them and we forgive them quickly. That we pray for them and we pray for them quickly. And that we find every opportunity to bless somebody else, to bless them with no expectation of our own gain. Last scripture, Micah 6, 8, what I want to close on. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And I love this. Let's sum up the whole gospel right here. And what does the Lord require of you? To act 
justly. Remember, not in force, but to act justly. Love mercy. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. Take responsibility for you and your house. And you do justly. Love to extend mercy to everyone that you can. And walk humbly before God. That's what he requires of us. So I want to do something a little different this morning. You can just stay seated. But we're going to take communion together as a church. And if you didn't get communion, just slip up your hand and an usher will get it to you. Have a little cup like this. A few over here. Communion is such a beautiful thing. Not only are we celebrating the work that Christ did on the cross and the price that he paid, but I believe communion links us. It just always has this essence of history with me. It links us to the church of generations before us church throughout history since Jesus and how whenever they would come together they would break this bread together and receive this wine together in different formats and different ways but it's a tradition of that binds us together in remembrance of the simple gospel but there's a scripture in your Bible that says before you bring your gifts to the altar says if you have a problem with a brother or sister leave your stuff at the altar and go make it right and then come back go make it right and then come back it's not after your stuff it's not after your time it's after your heart today before we take communion and we celebrate the work of the cross, I want us to, if you could just bring the house lights down, I just want you in the quietness of this moment. I want you to take a moment with God and I want you to ask him personally. Is there somebody that I have to forgive? Listen, you might say, well, pastor, you don't know what they've done. I don't. Many of you know part of my story and my stepdad was very uh, verbally and physically abusive for many years. And, you know, at one point I was in a service probably very much like this. And I said, all right, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to choose to forgive. That was pretty easy to do until he got sick and passed and me and my sisters were tasked with cleaning up his house and yours truly had to preach his funeral. And that was one of the most sobering things for me because all these emotions begin to come up that I thought I forgave him. And now you want me to preach his funeral? Celebrate his life? It's a quick realignment in my soul. That forgiveness, it's a choice. Doesn't mean there's not the absence of pain there. There can still be pain. 
But forgiveness means I'll do anything I can to bless you. I'll pray for you. And I will not speak ill of you. So in this moment, I just want you to bow your head and close your eyes and just ask the Lord. Is there anyone, Father, that I've been holding on to unforgiveness? And right now, if that person comes to your mind, if you see an image or a name, it's probably a sign that in there's some pain somewhere. Again, I don't discredit that pain. But I do say you cannot allow that pain to be an excuse to keep you from winning the warfare in your life. And I know you can't do it now, but if a name comes to you, I want you to commit to the Lord and say, Father, I will do whatever it is that I can do to forgive that person and make it right. And some of the ways that that could look is it might mean you have to make the first phone call. Well, what if I call them and they cuss me out and hang up on me? That's not your problem. You're not here to enforce justice. You are here to be justly. What if I need to ask them to forgive me for simply just holding on to a grudge? Then do it. Again, it doesn't mean you have to let everybody back into your circle and into your realm. Father, I believe you're speaking to individuals right now, even those listening or watching online. Lord, we take this moment very serious because we don't want to block what you want us to have in our life and how you want us to live and to see victory in different areas of our life and give the enemy a foothold. So would you speak to us in this moment? Would you help us pull out the sword of love? The sword of warfare. Let's get ready to take communion together. I just again encourage you, if the Lord brought up a name, commit to him in this moment that I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to do it. And I can do it because he first loved me. Think about it this way. When Christ sat with his disciples and he broke the bread and he poured the wine, he was speaking into the future for your and I's sin. We hadn't been born yet. In my life, I will cause and have caused other people pain. Not perfect. I will hurt other people. And with God's foreknowledge of knowing that James Epperly will hurt people and cause other people pain and blow it time and time again, in my overwhelming love, I will pre-make a way to forgive his sins. That's incredible. That's incredible. So as we partake of the body and the, the, the juice, the blood together today, let us remember that we love because he first loved us. So let's partake of the body together. Fathers, we receive 
grape juice, a symbol of your body, your blood. We ask you, Father, forgive us where we've sinned. Forgive us where we've gone astray. Forgive us where we've held a grudge and forgive us where we have given the enemy a foothold of walking in unforgiveness. We repent and we commit to you this day that we will make it right. In Jesus' name, let's partake together. It's an old song of the church. I just want to close in singing. Stand to your feet. I didn't tell the team this, so forgive me, guys, but so simple, but it's so powerful. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy. It's what we want, Father. Tried and true. Tried and true, Lord. I don't know. I just felt this essence of scripture that says, you know, the joy of our salvation. When you first came to God and you felt so squeaky clean, I feel like he wants to restore that today. Take away the hurt and the pain and the trauma and the disappointment. Just to be tried and true, pure and holy. God loves you, and I do too.